Right, number one, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker, and I'm sure that members across the House will wish to join me in marking Holocaust Memorial Day this Saturday and in remembering all those who endured such appalling suffering in the Holocaust. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. And later I will travel to Switzerland to attend the World Economic Forum. And who knows, I might even bump into the Shadow Chancellor while I'm there. (laughs) Stephen Metcalf. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, as you will know, and um, my right honourable friend will know, last week was the very successful launch of the EMF engineering campaign, yeah. aimed at changing the perception of engineering and inspiring the next generation of engineers. Yeah. I know that the Prime Minister is personally committed to this campaign, so can I therefore invite her to join me and 80,000 young people at this year's Big Bang Fair to reinforce the message that engineering is a great career and open to everyone, regardless of background, ethnicity and gender. Yeah. He does indeed make an important point, and this issue of engineering, particularly for more women seeing engineering as a career, is something that I have have promoted for many years now. But engineers, of course, are vital to our economy, and that's why we do want to see everyone, and this isn't just about gender, it is about background and ethnicity, everybody, whatever their background, having the chance to build a good career in uh, engineering. And the Year of Engineering gives us a great opportunity to work together with business to do exactly that. and uh, uh, if I have the opportunity through, if my diary allows, I'd be happy to attend the fair he refers to. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join with the Prime Minister in commemorating Holocaust Memorial Day. Many members will be signing the Book of, of Remembrance. Many will be attending the event tomorrow. We have to teach all generations that the descent into Nazism and the Holocaust must never, ever be repeated anywhere in this, on this planet. Does the Prime Minister agree with the Foreign Secretary that the National Health Service needs an extra £5 billion? <laughs> Prime Minister. <laughs> well, I, I, think the, uh, I think the Right Honourable Gentleman, as I recall, was here in this chamber for the autumn budget that was given by my uh, Right Honourable Friend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, where he announced that we'll be putting £6 billion more into the National Health Service. Jeremy Corbyn! The only, pr- the only problem with that, Mr Speaker, is it was £2.8 billion spread like thin gruel over two years. Yes, that's right. Two weeks ago, the Prime Minister told the House, and I quote, it is indeed the case that the NHS was better prepared this winter than ever before. 68 senior A&E doctors have written to the Prime Minister about what they describe as very serious concerns we have for the safety of our patients. They say patients being treated in corridors are dying prematurely. Who should the public believe? The Prime Minister or A&E doctors? Prime Minister! It is right that the NHS was better prepared for this winter than it ever has been before. We saw 3,000 more beds being uh, uh, brought into use over the winter period. 
We saw the use of the 111 call system actually leading to a significant reduction in the number of uh, call-outs, the number of people having to go into hospital. We have seen the changes that have been made in accident and emergency with the GP streamlining, actually helping to ensure that people who do not need to go into hospital uh, uh, went into hospital. Overall, overall, we have seen 2.8 million more people last year uh, visiting accident and emergency than did so in 2010. Our NHS is indeed providing for patients. There are winter pressures. We were prepared for those winter pressures, and we will ensure, as we have done every year under this Conservative government, that the NHS receives more funding. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, since 2010 we've lost 14,000 NHS beds. The King's Fund, the Health Foundation and Nuffield Trust all agree the NHS needs another four billion. In December, the month just gone, the NHS England recorded its worst ever A&E performances, with more patients than ever waiting over four hours. Now, the UK Statistics Authority say the numbers may be worse because the figures have been fiddled. Can the Prime Minister tell the House when figures calculated in line with previous years will be published? Prime Minister. I have to say to the right honourable gentleman that the NHS is open in publishing a whole variety of figures in relation to the targets that it, uh, that it has. We are putting more money into the NHS year in and year out, and we are continuing to do that. But if he wants to talk about figures and about targets being missed, yes, the latest figures show that in England 497 people were waiting more than 12 hours. But the latest figures also show that under the Labour government in Wales, 3,741 people were waiting more than 12 hours. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is responsible for the underfunding of the Welsh Government and the needs of Welsh. And despite that, the, despite that, the overall Welsh Labour health budget has grown by 5% in 2016-17. It's Labour Wales with a problem of underfunding from an, a Conservative government based in Westminster. So far, Mr Speaker, this winter, 100,000 patients have been forced to wait more than 30 minutes in the back of an ambulance in NHS England, for which she is responsible. Yet still, the Prime Minister refuses to give the NHS the money it needs. Can she tell us how many more patients will face life-threatening waits in the back of ambulances this winter? I say to the right honourable gentleman that of course we want to ensure that people aren't waiting in those ambulances. But the only answer he ever comes up with is the question of money. The question No, that this is no. The question the question is this. The question is this. Why are there some hospitals where the percentage of patients waiting more than 30 minutes is zero and other hospitals where the percentage of patients waiting more than 30 minutes is considerably higher? And if he wants to talk about funding, perhaps we should look at what the Labour Party promised at the last general election last year. Yeah, no, no, well, it's all very well 
shadow ministers shouting about the uh, comparison of money. The point is that at the last election, the Institute for Fiscal Studies said this. Labour and the Conservatives are pretty much on the same page. There's not much to choose between them in terms of the money they'll put into the NHS. A Labour government wouldn't be underfunding the NHS. A Labour government wouldn't be privatising the NHS. A Labour government wouldn't be underfunding social care. A Labour government would be committed to an NHS free at the point of use as a human right. Mr Speaker, according to a whistleblower, as many as... Hang on, hang on. According to a whistleblower, as many as 80 patients were harmed or died following significant ambulance delays over a three-week period this winter. This is a very serious situation and the Prime Minister must be aware of it. What investigation is the Department of Health carrying out into these deeply alarming reports? Prime Minister. Right, Honourable Gentlemen, that when we hear reports of that sort, of course they are very alarming. And that is why the Department of Health does make sure that investigations do take place. Now, that may be undertaken by the Department of Health or by the particular trust involved, the Ambulance Trust or the hospital. But these issues are properly investigated because we don't want to see that happening. We do want to see people being properly cared for. And if there are lessons to be learned, then they will be learned. Because what we want to do is our support for the NHS is about providing it with the funding, the doctors, the nurses, the treatments, the capabilities that it needs in order to be able to deliver for patients. That's why we're backing the NHS with more uh, funding. That's why we're ensuring they get the best treatments and uh, survival rates for cancer are higher than they've ever been before. It's why we're ensuring we have better joined up services uh, across the NHS and social care so those people who don't need to go into hospital are able to be cared for at home. And it's why we're ensuring that we're reducing waste in the NHS so taxpayers' money is spent as effectively as as maybe on patient care. That's a plan for the NHS, but it's a plan that puts patients first. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister must be aware of ambulances backed up in hospital car parks with nurses treating patients in the back of ambulances, ambulance drivers and paramedics desperate to get on to deal with the next patient can't leave because the patient they're dealing with at that moment can't get into the A&E department. It's been reported that a man froze to death waiting 16 hours for an ambulance. Last week, a young gentleman called Chris wrote to me saying, my friend's 93-year-old father waited four hours for an ambulance after a fall. These are not isolated cases. These are common parlance all over the country. It needs money, it needs support, and it needs it now. The Prime Minister is frankly in denial about the state of the NHS. Even the absent Foreign Secretary recognises it, but the Prime Minister isn't listening. People using the NHS can see from their own experience it's being starved of resources. People are dying unnecessarily in the back of ambulances and in hospital corridors. GP numbers are down, nurses are leaving. The NHS is in crisis. Mr Speaker, Tory MPs might not like it, but I ask this question of the Prime Minister. When is she going to face up to the reality and take action to save the NHS from death by a thousand cuts? Prime Minister! 
There is only one part of the NHS that has been cut, seen a cut in its funding. It's the NHS in Wales under a Labour government. This, this is a government. This is a government that is backing the NHS plan, that is putting more money into the NHS, that is recruiting more doctors and nurses, that is seeing new treatments come on board which ensure that people are getting the best treatment that they need. Because this is a government that recognises the priorities of the British people. Priorities to ensure that our NHS remains a world-class healthcare system, indeed the best healthcare system in the world. Priorities to build the homes that people need, to make sure that our kids are in good schools. This is a government that is building a country that works for everyone. And a country, a country in which a country in which people can look to the future with optimism and hope. Chris Green. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The British people need to be confident in the integrity of our voting system. So what is my right honourable friend doing to follow up on Sir Eric Pickle's report securing the ballot to minimise voter fraud, whether this is for referenda, general elections or local elections? Prime Minister! The friend has raised an important point, can I, uh, as he was on his feet, so congratulate him for, I believe, a very good uh, council by-election result in Hutton when the Conservatives took a seat from the, uh, from the Labour Party. But he raises an important issue about strengthening our electoral process and enhancing the confidence people have in our democratic processes. And we're shortly going to be running pilot schemes in five local authorities to identify the best way to implement voter ID nationality. And in Tower Hamlets, in Slough and in Peterborough, they're going to be piloting measures to improve the integrity of the postal and proxy vote process. Our democracy matters, but it's important people can have true confidence in it. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I wish you a happy Burns Day for tomorrow? And can I associate myself with the remarks of the Prime Minister for Holocaust Memorial Day? We should never forget the horrible tragedies and the price that people had to pay. But we should also remember the genocide which has happened in many territories since that time as well. And we all must work to eradicate that scourge from our society. Mr Speaker, earlier this week, the Royal Bank of Scotland Chief Executive Officer, Ross McEwen, <coughs> admitted in a leak memo that closing 22 local branches would be painful for customers. 13 towns are to lose their last bank in Scotland. Prime Minister, I will give you one other opportunity. As the majority shareholder, will you meet with RBS and make the case to keep the bank branches open? Prime Minister. Well, the, the Right Honourable Gentleman has asked me this question on a number of occasions, and I've made the point in response to every one of those questions, and the answer isn't going to change today. These are commercial decisions for the uh, banks involved. Uh, we do have a duty as a government. We look at how the market's working for people. That's why we established the access to banking standard that commits banks to carry out a certain number of steps before closing a branch, and it's why we welcome the post office, uh, who's also reached an agreement with the banks that allow more customers than ever before to use post office services. So around 99% of personal customers are able to carry out their day-to-day -day banking at a post office as a result of that new agreement. That's the government making sure that people are covered by the services they need. Ian Blackford. Mr Speaker, I would simply say to the Prime Minister, we own RBS. It's yep. time that you took your own responsibilities. By closing these branches and replacing some with mobile banking vans, which do not provide disability access, 
the Royal Bank of Scotland appears to be in breach of the UK Equality Act. Wheelchair user Sandra Borthwick has described her experience as banking outside as degrading. Does the Prime Minister agree that RBS has a legal responsibility to offer equality of services to disabled customers? And will she hold RBS to account on this issue? Prime Minister. To the right honourable gentleman, of course, we all want to be able to see that uh, all customers are able to access the services that they they need. That is both uh, customers who are disabled and customers who live in remote areas. Uh, As I've said to him, this is a commercial decision that has been taken by the Royal Bank of Scotland. It is not, it is not, banks are, banks are closing branches. Other banks are closing branches because what they see is actually less use being made of those branches. But as the uh, the right honourable gentleman has been calling, talking about matters financial, I'm sorry that he wasn't able to stand up and welcome the fact that today's trade figures for Scotland show that their biggest export market remains the rest of the United Kingdom. Damien Green. Thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot easier asking them than answering them. Um, it, it's vital for long-term prosperity that the government maintains infrastructure investment. With this in mind, and especially as proposals for new bridges are currently fashionable, can I ask the Prime Minister to commit the government to a very practical idea, which is an early start on the Lower Thames crossing between Kent and Essex, which would create up to 5,000 jobs, relieve pressure on the motorway network, and provide a significant boost to the economy of the whole eastern side of England. Prime Minister. Uh, my right honourable friend is right in paying, uh, drawing attention to the uh, impact of infrastructure uh, when it is developed in various parts of the UK and on the specific point of the Lower Thames crossing. I know that's going to unlock opportunities and economic growth for the region and the country and will offer better connections, new connections and better journeys. And of course it's part of the biggest investment in England's road network in a generation. Um, I think, as my right honourable friend knows, Highways England have announced the preferred route. They did that last year. I recognise this has raised some concerns in affected constituencies, but can I assure him and other members that there are going to be further opportunities for those both who support these proposals and those who do not to be able to give uh, their views and have their say? But he's absolutely right. New infrastructure developments like this can make a huge impact not only on jobs during the development of that infrastructure, but on the impact on the economy locally and nationally. Kirsty Blackman. Mr Speaker, outside a customs union with the EU, many UK businesses would face, in the Brexit Secretary's own words, complex and punitive rules of origin tariffs. Given the Prime Minister's aim for frictionless trade post-Brexit, can she confirm whether or not it is her intention to pursue a customs union with the EU? Prime Minister. I have said this on many occasions and I am very happy to repeat it. Leaving the European Union means we will be leaving the uh, single market. We will no longer be members of the single market. We will no longer be members of the customs union. We want to be able to sign and implement trade deals with other parts of the world as part of an independent trade policy. But yes, in the negotiations that we're, uh, that we're looking forward to for a bespoke deal, a comprehensive free trade agreement between the UK and the European Union for the future, we will be looking for as tariff-free and frictionless uh, a trade agreement as possible. Andrew Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, 
Mr Speaker, many members on both sides of the House, myself included, have expressed concern about the future of our national defences. But of course the fact is that this Government will always take the right long-term decisions to protect our national security. So can my right honourable friend today assure this House and assuage these concerns that this approach will continue? Prime Minister. My, my honourable friend has raised a very important subject. And in July, the government initiated the National Security Capability Review, which was in support of the implementation, ongoing implementation of the 2015 National Security uh, Strategy and Strategic Defence and Security Review to ensure that we do indeed have the capabilities, the investment in those capabilities that we need uh, in our national security, and that that investment, those capabilities are as effective, as joined up as possible. Uh, I've agreed the high-level findings of this review with ministerial colleagues at the National Security Council, and uh, I've directed that the work should be finalised, and uh, with a view to publishing a report on this in late spring. But it has been a significant piece of work. It will help to ensure we have the right capabilities. As part of that, we recognise more work was needed on defence uh, to work on modernising defence. And we want to ensure that the defence budget is being spent intelligently and efficiently and that we're investing in the capabilities we need to keep our nation safe. And my right honourable friend, the Defence Secretary, will update the House on this in due course. Vicky Foxcroft. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Tragedy that in the past year knife crime has risen by 26 per cent. The Youth Violence Commission is conducting the first national youth survey to look at their experiences of trauma and violence. Will the Prime Minister meet with me to discuss the root causes of youth violence and how we can find solutions? Um, Minister. What can I say to the Honourable Lady? This is an important issue, and obviously we do need to look at this, uh, this issue. And of, although, as she will know, crimes that are traditionally measure, measured by the Independent Crime Survey show uh, a drop of well over a third since 2010, we do need to consider these issues of the root causes of violence, particularly among young people, and uh, especially with these knife crimes that we see among young people. The nature of crime is changing. It's important that we remain adaptable and resilient, and are, but we need to understand that. And I'm sure my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, would be happy to meet her to talk about youth violence and the causes of youth violence. Peter Aldous. Thank, Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. On 28 December, the East of England Ambulance Service attended an address in Lowestoft at which a man was sadly confirmed as having died. This followed on from a call the previous afternoon from the police regarding the same person who, it appear, was left outside overnight in what were inhospitable weather conditions. I have now spoken to the person who made the initial call to the emergency services, and I have serious concerns as to how the matter was handled, including why the case only came to light in the last few days. I would ask the Prime Minister to endorse the request that I have made to the East of England Ambulance Service and Suffolk Police to immediately instigate a full and independent inquiry to establish exactly what happened and to then put in place measures to ensure that such a tragic event does not happen again. Prime Minister. Can I share my honourable friend's concerns about about this uh, event, about what happened here, the tragedy that happened here? Uh, First of all, I think we should recognise that our ambulance services, uh, all those who are delivering our ambulance services, work hard and regularly go above and beyond the call of duty to ensure our safety. But there have been concerns raised about the provision of services in the East of England Ambulance Service Trust, including, obviously, this very, very worrying and tragic case that my honourable friend has raised. As I said in response to the Leader of the Opposition earlier, we take these uh, issues, these uh, uh, 
cases very seriously any claims that patient safety has been put at risk are taken seriously. And the Department of Health and Social Care has received assurances these reports are being investigated by the Trust as a serious incident in conjunction with its commissioners. This is also an issue that my honourable friend, the uh, uh, Minister of State for Health, has discussed with the Chief Executives of NHS England and NHS Improvement. Mr Speaker, three million people in this country live in homes that are unfit, posing a threat to their health and safety. And not only is that hell for tenants, it costs the cash-strapped NHS billions. Last week, the House gave a second reading to my housing fitness bill, which will give tenants tenants new legal rights to act against the worst landlords and I was very grateful to have the support of the government as well as uh, the backing of, this benches, of these benches. But time for private members' bills is inevitably limited and tenants cannot wait. Will she assure me she will do all she can to make sure this important and now consensual bill will make rapid progress and become law? Prime Minister. The, uh, the Honourable Lady raises a very important point. We have seen over the last uh, uh, six to seven years a significant significant number of homes uh, now meeting the decent home standard, um, but the condition in which people are living is an important one, and I will ask the Leader of the House to look at the issue she's raised about her own bill. Trudy Harrison. internationally celebrated for its lakes and mountains and known for nuclear excellence. Mm. This afternoon, Parliament is hosting a taste of Cumbria, showcasing our fine food and drink offer. Could I extend a very warm invitation to yourself and the Prime Minister <coughs> to join us, pop along and sample some of our finest fare? Well, can I, can I, can I say to my honourable friend that I'm afraid my diary does not permit me to attend the uh, Taste of Cumbria event this afternoon. But if I can drop her a hint, I understand there was a Taste of Lincolnshire event recently, and my honourable friend, the member for Louth and Horncastle, actually sent me some Lincolnshire products after the event, so I haven't been able to go there. So I'm not, not hinting at anything, but... I'll pop along. Sarah Jones. Mr Speaker, this morning thousands of us across the country heard my friend and former boss, Baroness Tessa Jow, talk for the first time since she was diagnosed with a high-grade brain tumour. As ever, it was a joy to hear her utter relentless positivity and complete commitment to changing the world. In a speech in the other place tomorrow, she will call for improved cancer diagnosis and treatment. Mr Speaker, will the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary meet with Tessa and I and other health experts to talk about how we improve outcomes to meet her goal and ultimately save lives? Prime Minister. I say to the Honourable Lady, I'm, I'm sure that the whole House was uh, saddened to hear of the diagnosis of the noble, the, uh, noble Baroness, uh, the noble Lady Baroness Jowell, um, but also uh, encouraged by the positive approach which she is taking. And I'm told my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, says that uh, Baroness Jowell's uh, speech this morning was very moving in this. And I'm sure that everybody across this whole House will send her the very best wishes in the, at this time. We do want to make sure cancer treatment is a priority for the government. We do want to make sure that the best treatments are being provided. 
and uh, we will consider investing in anything that improves that. And I'm, we've accepted 96 recommendations in the NHS Cancer Strategy. Of course, we do need constantly to look at this. And my, honourable, my right honourable friend, the Health Secretary, will be happy to meet with the honourable lady and with the Baroness Jowell. Tessa Jowell, of course, has been an outstanding public servant. I hope the House will understand if I say that in my 20 years in this place, I have never met a more courteous or gracious Member of Parliament. Mr John Hayes. I'm only just beginning, Mr Speaker. Uh, the Prime Minister will, will know of the devastation, debt and despair caused by fixed odds betting terminals, which have now become widespread. Far cry from the charm of the bingo hall, uh, the pool's coupon, or the style of the Sport of Kings. Uh, given there's a review, will she meet me and others to discuss how the maximum bet on these terminals can be reduced and take the chance simultaneously to plan how a crackdown on the online gambling sites which target young children. Yeah. Mr Speaker, the stakes are too high to gamble with our children's futures. Yeah. Well, can I Prime say Minister. to my right honourable friend that we are clear that the fixed odds betting terminal stakes will be cut uh, to make sure we have a safe and sustainable industry where vulnerable people and children are protected. As I suspect my right honourable friend knows, the consultation that uh, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sports uh, has launched on this, actually closed yesterday, so a final decision will be made in due course. Uh, he will know, with regard to the specific point about children, and this is important, that there are, of course, in place controls to prevent children and young people from accessing online uh, gambling, and the Gambling Commission has asked the Responsible Gambling Strategy Board to examine the wider relationship between children and gambling. I think it's important that as we take these decisions, we all recognise the potential threats and dangers here, but that we ensure that we have the best information possible in order to be able to act. Julie Elliott. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Amber Rose Cliff, my 25-year-old constituent, lost her battle with cervical cancer and died in January last year. Amber went to her GP around 30 times with symptoms and repeatedly asked for a smear test and she was refused. She only got the test when she paid to have the test done privately and sadly the cancer had spread at that point. Will the Prime Minister support Amber's family in their campaign to introduce Amber's law which would change the regulations so that women under 25 can access a smear test on the National Health Service when they are symptomatic. Prime Minister. That, uh, I, I send my condolences, and I'm sure the whole House does, to, uh, Amber and her, to Amber's family for this terrible thing that has happened. Look, the smear test is hugely important. Um, sadly, what we see, even for those who qualify, women who qualify today to have the smear test, that too many women do not take it up. And look, I know it's not a comfortable thing to do, because I have it as others do, but it is so important for women's health. And I first of all want to encourage women to actually take the smear test, have that test. 
Secondly, she has raised an issue about the availability of that test. And I will ask my, my uh, right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Health, to look at this issue. It is a question that has been raised before for those who are under the age of 25. Of course, action has been taken in terms of the vaccine um, that has been introduced for teenagers. Um, uh, there have been some questions about that. I have had people in my constituency raising questions about that. We need to address this issue in every way possible. So I will look, we will look at that question of the age qualification for the smear test. But my overall message is, please, those who are called for a smear test, go and have it. David Evanett. Thank you very much. Yeah. Would uh, my right honourable friend join me in congratulating Bexley Rugby Club on its 60th anniversary and agree with me that the pursuit of sport is good for health and well-being. Well, uh, can I say to my my honourable friend, I'm very happy to endorse what he has said about sport and indeed to uh, join him in congratulating Bexley Rugby Club on this significant anniversary. I'm sure that over all of those years it has given many young people and others uh, an introduction to the joy of sport and the way that sport can be both good for the community, for society and also for the individuals. So I'm happy to endorse his claim. Racy Brabin. Thank you. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This week I've been approached by a constituent, Emma Jane Best, who's a single mum and up until December was a teacher. She's been told that she's going to have to wait over six weeks for universal credit payment and been denied hardship loan. Uh, This means she's living on £20 a week child benefit and the charity of food banks. Can the Prime Minister tell us, is that how universal credit is supposed to work? And does she regret Emma Jane's son now joining the nearly 9,000 children living in poverty in Batley and Spen? We made changes to the operation of universal credit, uh, which were announced in the budget, including, including changes which mean that the, uh, the availability of advance payments has increased, the size of those advance payments has, uh, has increased, but I am sure if she would like to send the details of the particular right in with the details of the case, then we can look at it and, and make sure it is properly considered. Maggie Throop. I want the latest figures from the Office of National Statistics, which show that the government is making further progress in reducing the deficit. Would my right honourable friend agree to be reckless to change course now in favour of a policy of renationalisation, which would burden taxpayers like those in Erewash with an estimated bill of over £170 billion? Prime Minister. My honourable friend raises a very important point. It hasn't been easy reducing the deficit in the way we have. We had to deal with uh, the biggest deficit in our peacetime history that was left us by the Labour Party, but by the government's decisions from the government. Yes. Yes. Labour may not like hearing that, but it's what happened. Uh, And uh, it is. It is by the hard work of the British people and by decisions that the government has taken that we have been able to reduce that deficit. But £170 billion extra, in order to meet the ideological desires of the Leader of the Opposition, would saddle people up and down this country with higher debt and ordinary people would pay the price. Edrie Brock! Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will she instruct the DWP to release the details of benefits claimants with disabilities who have taken their own lives after their claims were turned down, stopped without notice or significantly reduced? 
Minister. The Honourable Lady, that the DWP does not give uh, details of individuals with whom it deals, and that's absolutely right. It's absolutely right. What it does do is ensure that we have a welfare system that provides support to those who need it and a welfare system that increasingly encourages those who can to get into the workplace because we continue to believe that work is the best route out of poverty. Nikki Morgan. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. In the December press release, the Bank of England described the UK's financial system as both a national asset and a global public good. Does my right honourable friend think it's unreasonable that the UK's financial services sector, which pays billions of pounds in taxes, wants to hear the government's ambitions to ensure the City of London remains a global preeminent financial centre in the same way that the government set out its ambitions for other sectors last summer? Prime Minister. I say to my right honourable friend that I have said in this chamber that we retain that ambition for the uh, City of London to remain a global financial centre. I've said it outside this this chamber, and it is indeed what we are working on. I was very pleased to welcome a number of senior representatives from the financial services sector to Number 10 Downing Street only a matter of weeks ago to sit down with them and talk to them about how we can ensure that we do exactly that. London's place as a financial centre for the world is not just a benefit to the United Kingdom, it's a benefit to the global financial system and it's also a benefit to the European Union. Mr Tanmanjit Singh Desi. Thank you very much. It's absolutely wonderful, Mr Speaker, that while others are talking about building walls, we in Britain are talking about building bridges. (laughs) Connecting communities together despite Brexit. But let me reassure our American friends that the Mexicans know the French will be paying for it because our NHS needs to be properly funded first. However, can the Prime Minister confirm that rather than building Airy Ferry 22 mile long bridges over the English Channel or a £50 billion Boris Airport in the Thames Estuary, when will the six kilometre rail track, the Western Rail Link to Heathrow, from my Slough constituency, connecting Wales, the South and the West directly to Heathrow, when will that finally be built or will we be subjected to further sluggish studies and consultations? Prime Minister. Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman that I believe there is very strong cross-party support for the Western Rail Link for Heathrow. Uh, The Honourable Gentleman has expressed his support. My right honourable friend, the member for Newbury, has also been uh, supporting this. It would reduce journey times for passengers in the South West. It could support the Thames Valley economy as well. It's something that I myself have looked into as a Thames Valley MP uh, previously. Development funding has been committed for this project, and the Department of Transport is going to provide further detail on the timing in due course. Dr Andrew Murison. Can I congratulate the Prime Minister and the parties in Northern Ireland for the resumption today of talks at Stormont? What more can be done to ensure that the executive is restored and the nightmare of direct rule avoided. Prime Minister. My honourable friend is absolutely right that the people of Northern Ireland need strong devolved government and political leadership, and they cannot continue to have their public services suffer by the lack of an executive without ministers making key policy and budget decisions. So we are determined to re-establish a fully functioning, inclusive, devolved administration that works for everyone 
in Northern Ireland. Uh, we believe that a basis for a deal exists, and that is why, as my uh, honourable friend has said today, my right honourable friend, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has started a set of political talks to restore the executive. I believe this is very important. I would encourage, strongly encourage all parties to come together and focus on the job of restoring devolved government in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Over Christmas, Toon Aid and Newcastle United football fans raised over £50,000 for the West End Food Bank in my constituency, which you are soon to visit, Mr Speaker, um, helping to feed people like John, who despite having COPD, arthritis, dyspepsia, prostatism, type 2 diabetes and anxiety and depression, was sanctioned for not working hard enough to try and find work. Will the Prime Minister congratulate the people of Newcastle on their generosity and will she explain why it was necessary? Prime Minister. I say to the Honourable Lady that I applaud all those who give their time voluntarily, raise money uh, for across the board in terms of the activities. She's raised a specific, uh, specific uh, example of the work of people in Newcastle and I commend people for the, uh, when they do uh, raise money and raise money for uh, causes. Can I just say to the Honourable Lady, I can't discuss an individual case across this dispatch box, as she well knows. I think it is important, it is important that we do ensure that we have a system uh, which works does work properly and fairly, and I'm sure if she wants to raise the individual case with the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, it will be looked into. Heidi Allen. Very much indeed, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will know the very welcome introduction of the national minimum wage has created an as yet unresolved difficulty for the care sector. An unresolved difficulty for the care sector, specifically for 24-hour care for those with significant learning difficulties. The, common, the issue is commonly referred to sleep-in shifts and owed monies to HMRC. Would the Prime Minister agree to meet with me and a number of concerned colleagues to see how we can best find a way forward through this impasse? Prime Minister. My friend raises an important issue, and this is an issue which is of concern to a number of organisations and uh, to those uh, others around the House. I am very happy to meet her and look into this uh, particular question. I would say to my honourable friend this is a matter that the Cabinet Office has been looking at and working with uh, the relevant government departments, now the Department for Health and Social Care, to find a resolution to this issue, which I know is, has caused concern. That is why there have been uh, measures taken to defer the implementation of certain aspects of this, but we continue to work on it and are happy to uh, look into it. Finally, John Woodcock. Thank you, Thank you Mr Speaker. No one has been charged with Poppy Worthington's death, despite the 13-month-year-old 13, probably having been anally penetrated in the hours before her death at home. Poppy was not known to social services, despite a staggeringly troubled family history. So will she agree to our cross-party calls for a public inquiry so that we can learn the lessons from this and make children safer across the country? Prime Minister. I say to the Honourable Gentleman that I think this is a case that has shocked and appalled everybody around the country when they have seen uh, the horrific uh, abuse that was carried out uh, and obviously the tragic circumstances of Poppy's death and I'm sure everybody will join me in offering our condolences. The 
As I understand it, the Crown Prosecution Service has announced that it is considering the coroner's decision in liaison with the Cumbria Constabulary. Uh, and I think what is right is that we actually allow that process to continue to take place and we await the outcome of it before considering whenever any further action is needed. But I can assure the Honourable Gentleman that I think everybody across I and everybody across this House is well appraised of the significance of this issue and how appalling this tragedy once and was and the need for us to ensure that there is indeed justice but also that lessons are learned from it. Thank you. Order.